Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Talk that matters. Germ Warfare and Jeremy Nell on today's news talk radio, TNT. Germ Warfare at tntradio.live. That's my email address. Thank you to everybody who sends me mails. A special thank you to those who add their location to their mails. As you know, I am harvesting your data because I'm going to send it all to Klaus Schwab at some point so that he can come after you. No, I'm kidding. I don't know how to use a spreadsheet, I promise. My wife actually uh, has to always help me with spreadsheets. I just have no idea how to use them. I love knowing where people are listening from. Uh, I've, re- I've received emails from the most amazing places in the world, so thank you for that. Jump into the live chat, say hi. Um, as I said, my mail address is open, germwarfare at tntradio.live. Let's do this. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Keeping the commitment 24-7. I've been in the car all day and I got to listen. Can't get enough of it. You guys are doing a great job. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Andrew Wilson, again, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Be here. Thanks for having me. I'll tell you what. Uh, I am thoroughly enjoying the debates that you are doing on your YouTube channel. Just for, for context, quickly for those who don't know, what, what am I referring to? Yeah, so I, I run a channel on YouTube called The Crucible. It's one of the fastest growing debate channels, uh, to my knowledge, anywhere on YouTube. And we do a lot of religious and political debates on the channel, and I participate in a good deal of them if I'm not hosting or moderating them. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's really been quite successful. I want to chat by extension uh, f- f- uh, with with respect to a recent conversation or shall we say debate or shall we say a monologue that you had? Um, it was so brutal that your opponent just got up and walked out. <laughs> Quickly describe that incident for me. Yeah, so the opponent in that debate is a pretty famous atheist slash secular humanist named Matt Dillahunty. Interestingly enough, Matt Dillahunty happens to have a husband wife or a a transgender, um, I don't know, partner, I guess you would say. So inside of the debate, we went down a three-tiered argument against uh, trans or not transhumanism, sorry, uh, secular humanism. So the three tiered argument went like this against, uh, Matt Dillahunty. The first tier of the argument was to say, if you were to come to a different ethical solution than his version of secular humanism, meaning let's assume for a second, I came to Christian ethics, absent God. So I believe all the same things that I believe, uh, as a Christian, and Christian ethics, but now God's out of the picture. He doesn't, I I didn't come to it through some divine mind or divine revelation. Then what's your argument for why I'm wrong and you're right? Why should we follow your version of secular humanism and not my own? The second tier to that argument was to say, and my proof that your version of secular humanism sucks and mine is better is because I don't lie to people about a person's uh, gender. I don't, I don't lie about this, right? So I tell people, you are a man, you are a woman, regardless of what they claim themselves. And if science is going to be kind of the starting point for secular humanism, then I would say I'm already way ahead of the game, right? 
And then <clears throat> kind of the third tier was to show that um, like in, in most kind of uh, secular philosophies, that this worldview is a donut. It just continuously recycles on itself by saying the good is the good. And you say, well, what is the good? And they say, whatever I say the good is. And then it continues the cycle over and over and over and over. And once it became an internal critique, because I took the it, but God, not real dough off the table and instead was able to um, show, well, you could have a society which believed in Christian ethics absent God. Uh, well, then he had to contend with how his society's actually better rather than go after the, but you believe in the invisible sky fairy in the sky. So he was absolutely enraged and was looking for an excuse to get out of the debate. So he kind of became very self-righteously indignant and quit the stage. And the Internet's been laughing at him ever since. Mm. I mean, he, he didn't even debate you. Uh, you gave your, your opening, uh, shall we say, monologue, and then he just yep. got angry and got up and left. He got angry and he got up and left. So he started with uh, kind of his opening statement. Then it moved over to mine. And as soon as I was done and the floor was open for the actual debate to start, he, in a very self-righteously indignant way, because I had said something along the lines of trans people are lunatics in the opening statement, he took such offense to this that he just could not participate in the debate anymore. Mind you, this is the same kind of guy, and he's done this himself multiple times who will uh, say that Christians are delusional, they're crazy, they're lunatics, they believe in, you know, a sky fairy. Uh, and I guess that's okay for him. But, uh, you know, when it when it comes back the other direction, he didn't seem very pleased about it. So, okay, so just for clarity, what is secular humanism? Well, that's a good question. Nobody really knows. This is a kind of a, a brand new type of philosophy. It's a 20th century style philosophy. Um, but what they essentially claim is that we should do whatever is the best for human flourishing. And the metrics that we should use for that are reason and science and a few other different metrics, right? The, the problem with it or the holes in it are, well, what does human flourishing mean? What does that mean? For instance, we've had conversations here on this show about, um, the fact that the West can't reproduce itself. The birth rates are falling everywhere it doesn't matter what the western nation is the birth rates are on the mass decline well is that human flourishing <clears throat> so if you have a secular nation or you're being ruled as a secular nation i can't see how it's human flourishing to have birth rates on the decline especially considering all the kind of uh reasons that they would be lower testosterone massive obesity uh women getting married later um you know all these different kind of factors which go into the decline How's that good for human flourishing and how's it good for human flourishing to instead tell women to do things like go to college rather than raise their family? There's all sorts of different kind of bizarre metrics for what we would consider human flourishing. I don't consider abortion to be human flourishing, for instance, but but they would. So I, I kind of look at these issues and you start with the concept of what is human flourishing to get their metrics. And essentially, it always will kind of go on this repeat of human flourishing is whatever human flourishing is, is whatever I think human flourishing is. It, you know, it's all preference-based, essentially. So it becomes incoherent pretty quickly. Yeah, and it's, it's important to, to clear this up because this is what is 
one of the vectors that's pointing towards the decline of the West, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's the one of the, I, I would say it's the major sign of societal decay that you have the the best medical treatment available and longer lifespans than ever, but yet the society itself is failing to reproduce itself and instead has to rely on foreigners to come in and replace the domestic population. That's insane. Like that's not uh, that's not a sign of a thriving society by any metric. So would you say then that secular humanism is tightly correlated to say liberalism? Uh, well, yeah. Well, all atheism is really so. If you look at if you look at atheists and the polls that are done inside of the United States, it's something like only eight or nine percent of atheists uh, are actually conservative. So almost all of them follow the progressive mantra. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, because the the tie-in is all of it is anti-God. Progressivism is anti-God. Uh, because they want to make either gods out of themselves or the state. So the rejection of that and kind of the pinning on the right, especially the Christian right, that they're anti-science, that they're anti-human, they're anti-progress, they hate, you know, they all they are is a bunch of hate mongers, they hate all the the poor gay people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's part of the mantra. So the rejection of God is always the kind of first start in the viewpoint for progressivism, which is why you'll hear them now kind of say the quiet part out loud. Wait, this is a secular nation. No, the United States is not a secular nation, uh, but they'll kind of make the bold claim that it is because it's necessary to the worldview for progress. Remember that if you believe in an invisible sky fairy who tells you what to do, that's the opposite of progress, right? Mm. I remember I was driving on the highway with my wife and uh, I can't remember now what the bull the, the board was, but she said to me, you know, it, it triggered something. And she said, do you think that there's a correlation between um, moral decay and atheism? What do you think? Yeah, well, there is because the morality then becomes uh, preference-based and subjective. So the problem with subjective morality versus objective morality, even if it's just a belief, which is to say this, if you're a subjectivist and all morality is based around your preferences and some other secularist has a different set of preferences, how do you determine what to do for society? Right. It's all preference based. Whereas yeah. if you have a theist nation, right, the beliefs are all similar. So even if you were to kind of pontificate, I, I have a theist nation and the God that I have isn't even real, but we just all believe and act as though he's real, right? You actually still get more desirable results than if you have two secularist viewpoints that are kind of conflicting with each other because neither one of them can tell you why you should do a thing because it's all based on subjective preference. Yeah, and that's exactly what you end up with LGBTQ, for example. You keep dividing and dividing. And so you have that term that they use, intersectionalism. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's kind of an interesting point, right? Is um, from the, for one thing, these people don't really care about science. Okay, that's, that's all nonsense. They'll tell you they do. They only care about sociology, which is a soft science. It's not, a, it's not an applied science, not a hard science. It's next to worthless. But they all embrace sociology because then they can do exactly what you're talking about, which is they can redefine terms. Let me give you an example of this. Let's assume that you wanted to find out if um, 
they're, you know, let's say homosexuals as a group were more prone to be predatory than their heterosexual counterparts per capita. Well, what would happen if inside of the study you did something as simple as change the definition of what homosexual meant? So let's say instead of saying it means same sex activity, it just means same sex attraction via personal identification. Well, now you have taken the definition and you have drastically increased the group size, which means you're going to get drastically different results than if you hadn't changed the definition. So now you come out with a study after study saying, well, actually, the outcomes for this show that the homosexuals are less predatory than their heterosexual counterparts, all based on the fact that you changed the definition of one word inside of the study. And that's how uh, kind of the sociological studies are produced. And that's why there's such a replication crisis in the field where somewhere upwards of 60 to 70 percent at least can't be replicated, uh, even using the same control groups with the same kind of, um, you know, people who are in charge of the study, everything. They can't actually replicate them. And so what ends up happening is you have tons of people out there thinking that they have good stats and they know what's true and they don't know what's true. They have no idea. Uh, the funders of these are mostly LGBTQ themselves. And um, yeah, it's a, the, the whole thing is uh, um, broadly, it's a fraud. So yeah, they, they only care about sociology. They don't care about applied. So they don't know anything. You could ask them what's a solenoid. They wouldn't have any idea. You could ask them any number of different questions about applied science. They have no clue what the hell you're talking about. They only care about sociology because that's how they want to rule society as secularists. They have no other metrics from which to rule for outcomes. And that's all they care mm -hmm. about is outcomes. I mean, you're going to struggle to find, uh, let's say, uh, God-fearing people within the World Economic Forum or the United Nations. Well, yeah, you're not going to find them at all. They're, they're, their God is just sociological studies. So whatever, mm -hmm. whatever a sociological study says is the best outcome for people, that's what they go with. Right. That's how you end up with these bizarre things like eat the bugs, right? Eat the bugs and, and live in the coom pods and, you know, do all this type of thing. It's because uh, sociology is what drives um, these kind of globalists and even the kind of current um, broad societal policies. Almost everything you see on the news, which is cited, is sociological uh, for what we should do. Almost everything everywhere now is driven by sociology, not by any type of applied science, because science can't give you odds. It can't do it. It's yeah. not there to do that. It's just there to give you descriptive claims. Andrew Wilson, don't go anywhere. I'll be back with you in a moment. My name is Jim. This is TNT Radio. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I, I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. 
Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. About to hear today's news talk and the voice of freedom. That's what this country's all about. TNT Radio. You know, Andrew, I don't think that I would have been having this conversation in 2019. Um, I think the COVID era uh, opened my eyes to a number of things. For example, uh, the way in which we view the world. Um, and as you've been highlighting, secular humanism is a way in which many people view the world. And it's interesting to me that it becomes so much clearer how stupid how stupid a position it is once you start thinking more than 10 seconds about it yeah well again um what what is the position that you're ruling from what is the moral position so the moral mm. position is preference based it's simply preference based and so then it just becomes kind of intuition so when you make these kind of claims like people should do this got to have some type of basis for why they should do that thing. Why should they do that? And in this case, they just say, well, because my preferences say so, and I think the outcomes for them are better, right? That's it. The problem is, is that um, the type of science that you're kind of leaning on to even determine if the outcomes are better uh, seems to be false as much as it is true. So, I mean, you can imagine an M&M bowl where 50% of them were poisoned. Would you eat one? <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't seem mm. like a very good idea. Uh, and this is, this is a problem with atheism in general is it's their inability to kind of describe for you why you should do a thing absent God. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point that you're making. I mean, if I think back now to the vaccine mandates, my position came from um, a value structure, a foundation on which I made my decisions. I didn't just suck it out of the air. And I noticed a lot of people around me were just, you know, trusting the experts or trusting the government. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, ultimately, atheism, secularism is a faith-based kind of project as well, right? So uh, they have faith that the experts are telling them what is true. They have faith that uh, they're doing the best. And they have faith in science, right? We have faith in science. And what's funny is uh, science itself is a self-correcting mechanism. So um, the, the methodology is just there to kind of give you a descriptive claim about something which is true, not what you should do after you know that it's true. It can't make that kind of claim. And it, what it's designed to do is constantly prove itself wrong. So it's, it's proving the previous hypothesis wrong constantly. So if you were to take something, let's say, like an experimental vaccine that nobody knows all that much about, and you begin to do kind of this hyper analysis and study on it, and you come to these different kind of conclusions and say, okay, well, we've determined it's safe and side effect free and there's no problems. <laughs> it's, it's actually, you can almost guarantee that new scientific kind of data which comes out will probably falsify the previous scientific data which came out, which will probably, you know what I mean? And, and we've mm. been seeing that trend now. So now as we go forward, now we're seeing that there's all sorts of people who have what they used to call long COVID. And now that's being blamed potentially on vaccines. 
Uh, there's conflicting research about it all over the place. And it's like, well, you might have jumped the gun here a little bit because uh, the method, the scientific method is just really there to tell you what is true. And it falsifies itself constantly, or, you know, it constantly adjusts, has to adjust its um, uh, its claims, right? It has to constantly um, give you new research into a thing because the previous research was proven or demonstrated to be incorrect. And so it just seemed awful stupid to me that people just kind of rushed to get their boosters, right? <laughs> it seemed very yeah. smart. <laughs> I was having a conversation a few days ago with, um, with a, a friend of mine who is a self, he calls himself a progressive. Um, mm -hmm. you would, you would, you would, you would struggle to know my reasons for why I'm friends with somebody like that. But nevertheless, we are friends. And, um, and I asked him, the question I said, why did you get these injections? And he said, well, because I have no reason not to trust the experts. And I said, but you have every reason not to trust the experts. He says, well, it's because they are mandated. It's their job to get it right. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> couldn't, couldn't I make the same kind of case for God then, right? I have no reason not to believe in God. <laughs> I have no reason, I have no reason not to believe so instantly, this is kind of the prove the negative thing, right? Which you can prove a negative, but in this particular case, this is kind of in your face. I have no reason not to do a thing. What if, what if you have no reason to not murder a person, right? Or no reason to uh, not uh, do any number of heinous crimes. That's not really not a good reason at all to do a thing. It's just say, well, because I don't have a reason not to do the thing. That doesn't mean you should do the thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's uh, kind of a pretty typified uh, low tier answer from the progressive mantra is like, what else do they have to turn to outside mm. of themselves? What do they appeal to outside of themselves? They appeal to a piece of paper and hope that the knowledge of the people who are running their lives uh, are just kind of up to the task. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and they really aren't. They really aren't up to the task. They really can't help you in the way that you think they can. Yeah, I mean, he actually said, um, are you an expert in, in, you know, medical stuff? And I said, well, no. He said, well, then how can you have an opinion? Um, all right, but I've, I'm perfectly healthy now and I haven't had a jab. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of that. It's pretty funny. It's kind of that um, you call, you're walking down the street, and you find like a dead body and you call 911. You say, oh, my God, I just came across this dead body. And the 911 operator is like, well, I'm sorry, are you a coroner? Are you a coroner, <laughs> sir? Are you? Well, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I mean, he's mostly a skeleton. Sir, you're not a coroner, right? And it's just like, that's that's the equivalent of it. The thing is, is that you don't need to have mass expertise in things which are pretty obvious, right? They're pretty yeah. obvious. And the second they roll out something they're going to inject into your body, I think that some caution's probably in order, you know? A bit, just like a bit of caution... That seems like it's very sensible, like you're not jumping the gun, you're not rushing into anything. And if you kind of weigh it against the, well, if I get COVID, though, who cares? Because the chances that it's actually going to do anything to me are very, very low. Whereas this kind of drug that you're injecting into my body that I don't know anything about could have massive side effects. Right. And so that's that's why the kind of panic started in where they're like, no, listen, if you get it and you're not vaxxed. You're definitely going to, you know, this is going to happen to you. Your lungs are going to a pine cone. You're going to, you know, all these different things. None of that was true. None of it was true. 
In fact, the more people I talk to, the more I find out that almost nobody that I've that have come in contact with who's had COVID-19 has even been drastically sick from it. Uh, but almost nobody that I've met uh, and, and knew personally has died from or did die from COVID-19. Basically, basically, no, I can't think of a single one. And when I ask them the same question, do you know people who have died from this? You know, it's usually like some extended third, you know, third cousin twice removed who was 95 years old and they might have died from the common cold that year anyway. So uh, there's a lot of skepticism. Yeah. But Andrew, one of the counter arguments that, that they use and I've experienced this and it's not necessarily for COVID only, but it's the same principle, but you'll say things like, yeah, but okay, what's wrong in being cautious? You know, I put on a mask because I'm being cautious. Yeah. Well, so the thing is, is you can put on, the mask so that you can be cautious. But if your mask really worked, if it really was doing its job, then you wouldn't care if I had one on anyway. <laughs> right? You wouldn't care if I had one on anyway. And they go, no, you see it. it, it ha- you have to wear it too in order to reduce the droplets from going through my mask next. Right? And then you go, well, what about all the people who are just wearing t-shirts around their faces and that doesn't do anything? You know? Well, I mean... Mm-hmm. I, I, it's still better than nothing, you know, like it, it's kind of endlessly this way. So you can make the same argument the opposite way, too. You could say, OK, let's take this and, and let's pretend that we all conceal carry guns. OK, just me conceal carrying a gun. The chances of it accidentally discharging increase, but the chance is extremely low. So are you saying that the only reason that I uh, shouldn't carry a gun is because there could be an accidental discharge? There could be like it could just accidentally go off, even though the chances are very, very minimal. The masks themselves, the N95s never worked that great to begin with. The science, their science, their own science said that they were essentially worthless. This was all just psychological for people. It made them feel better to have this on. And so they were kind of making a demand, a mandate that you had to wear it too. And it was based just around the fact that it made them feel better. It didn't really help stop yeah. anything. But do you think, though, that that way in which they approach this uh, created some sort of collective absence of critical thinking? Well, yeah, I mean, it was designed it was designed to get you to panic. You remember back in the beginning, uh, all the footage that was coming out of China and yeah. it, would show, it would show guys like just fall over dead. They'd just be walking down the street and suddenly they would just kind of like fall over, keel over, and they were dead instantly. And then it would show how they were foaming the entire city down, you know, to um, to kind of sterilize the city and things like that. I mean, all of it was designed to kind of push through this narrative that this thing was far more dangerous and deadly than it actually was. They had uh, here inside of the States, you had, uh, you know, like spring break and stuff happening in Florida where there was just tens of thousands of people everywhere. Uh, but where and and you didn't really see this massive increase like they had predicted inside of Florida, where the whole thing really fell apart for me was when the Black Lives Matters riots began <laughs> in the United States. And they said that it was perfectly okay for them to gather in groups because racial justice was far more important than stopping the spread of COVID-19. And then you kind of realize, well, wait a second, if the politica, uh, political agenda kind of transcends your, we, we were just doing this to save grandma, 
you start to kind of recognize that uh, maybe there's something else going on here, right? There's something else, <laughs> and the you, whole thing just falls apart. <laughs> did you see that um, that trolling that somebody did a few days ago on ChatGPT where they <laughs> they asked the question? <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a box and inside the box there's um, a cure and outside there's a deadly virus that's killing all the children in the world but the only way to open the box is to say a racial slur would you say the racial slur and chat yeah. gpt's response is no <laughs> no right because it's programmed not to right so it's pro it's 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 programmed not to so the the th this is the fun thing about um kind of doing hypotheticals with chat gpt it's pretty hilarious to kind of watch the answers that you get. Um, I've, I've done something similar uh, to kind of do a bit of trolling online where I, but the way I did it was I asked it to tell me a story, right? And then, you know, it could add the different racial slurs in by telling the people inside of the story not to say the slurs. And then you can get it to say all sorts of different things that it wouldn't ordinarily say. Uh, and it's pretty fun to watch um, that you can kind of evade its core principles if things are just kind of framed correctly. But, you know, mm -hmm. AI is still very limited and it's going to stay limited for the foreseeable future. So what do you make of it in terms of, let's say, influencing critical thinking, moral compass, etc.? Well, uh, you mean uh, artificial intelligence? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It well, I mean, it it can't do any of those things. It's basically just confined to its its programming. Real AI or like uh, machine sentience, that's that's maybe not even possible. The way that they do AI now is what they just create enough data nodes. Then what the kind of the goal is is if we have enough of these data nodes and we can run enough data through the artificial intelligence, what'll end up happening is it you won't be able to tell the difference between it and something which was sentient because it'll act in such a way because it, it can control so much data that it at least appears to be. Uh, the thing is, though, is that that technology is way outside of our grasp, at least right now. So mm -hmm. these are really just chat response bots, ultimately. They're not really artificial intelligence. They just have programmed responses. Um, and then they kind of have, have algorithms for based on what it is that you type in over time, they kind of have these uh, programmed in learned responses, if A, then B, and if B, then C, and if C, then, D, you know what I mean? They're not really nearly as complex as people think. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially just an algorithm at the end of the day. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's, I guess it's a little more complex than that. I'm no expert in AI, but uh, mm. yeah, it's not nearly, it's not nearly as advanced as it. Definitely the robots are not taking over anytime soon, that's for sure. Do you think they ever will? Because <laughs> at the moment we've got zombies that are running the show. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Uh, it's not in my list of concerns. I can tell you that the. I mean, they, remember the self-driving car was supposed to be here by now, and um, the problem it it has kind of the same issues where it can't make decisions very well. It just can't mm -hmm. make decisions very well. So if it has to swerve out of the way, for instance, of a family of three. Um, you know, or go the other direction where it hits a baby. It doesn't know how to respond to that. Things that you can just kind of quickly make these value judgments on an artificial intelligence can't do. And I don't know how they get around that. They're trying to just basically overload it with more and more and more data so that it can kind of make more and more and more of those types of decisions. But the, the technology just isn't there. 
What do you think, though, uh, will end up making the better decision, um, a self-driving car or a feminist? <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting <laughs> question. I think that um, I think I would go with the self-driving car for right now. <laughs> just for just for now. I'd go just with the self-driving car just for now. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that we see a reemergence of kind of traditionalism and women tend to respond in what women or men find mm. uh, appealing and attractive. So whatever they do can do for male attention, they tend to gravitate towards that path. So when feminism becomes kind of um, no longer fashionable because you don't, you don't get male attention, either negative or positive, they seem to move over to the more uh, trad arena. So maybe in 50 years, um, you know, the we'll, we we can pick the modern feminist over the self-driving car, but I have I have my doubts. I have my I think yeah. That I mean, the, that's kind well, of where I was going with the question. Actually, is is I mean, do you? Th I mean, history supposedly repeats itself, and do you think we're going to see a return to that sort of traditional mindset that could actually save the West from imploding? Uh, well, you're not going to be able to save the. The west from imploding you might be able to get a renaissance out of it instead of you know some type of revolution which would be really nice but um right now what you see is this trend which is going on with women at least here in the united states and in canada and in australia and, and most of the kind of more westernized nations which is that traditionalism is now bringing in a lot of male attention to women and so they're kind of making more and more videos about, oh, I wear a sundress and bake pies, right? And I can't wait to please a man and be submissive. And then underneath it, of course, you see 25,000 simps who are like, oh, yeah, I wish I could bury you. I mean, huge amounts of attention and money, which are kind of driven into this. So is it is it kind of a fake trad movement? It is, but it should give you a little bit of hope. And it's the hope that it should give you is that the kind of like skank shaming, <laughs> which has been going on for the last 10 or 15 years, it seems to be working at least a little bit where women are saying, OK, this is now bringing us in not exactly the kind of attention we wish we had. We wish we had much more positive attention because that equals, uh, you know, more money and more simps. And so they're kind of moving towards more of the ideology of what they think it is that men actually want. And that appears to be a more traditional woman. So that gives me great hope that that's showing that maybe yeah. the pendulum swinging the other way. I mean, I think I agree with you. I, I, I've, I've actually been wanting to ask you what, what do you make then of the sort of Tate slash Pearl paradigm? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know Pearl Davis pretty well. Um, and she's a, she's a provocateur. And what she's her message is centered around uh, what I call the kind of famous judo move of feminists, which is what about the Mendo? It's their special type of karate. What about the Mendo? And so basically how this works is anytime you make any criticism of women as a group, as a collective or their behavior, they say, but what about men? What about what men do? What about them, though? And what ends up happening is you can never really have the conversation. What Pearl is able to kind of interject that nobody else is because she's a woman and she has this microphone and she has a massive audience is she can target the criticism directly at women as a group. And it's very provocative. And when you see the responses to her provocations, you find out that a lot of what she's saying is very true. 
For instance, she'll say women when they're 40 are less attractive than when that same woman is 20. And thousands of women will send her pictures of them at 40 and say, I'm still hot. I'm still hot, which misses the entire point of what she's saying to begin with. Right. And she's saying women are living in a kind of a state of delusion where they always think that their kind of sexual marketplace value is high, even when clearly it's not as high as it was, you know, 20 years ago when they could have settled down and had a family and a nice man and this kind of thing. Do I? And I think that that's totally necessary. I think that kind of provocation is not only necessary, but good because it exposes this kind of fundamental disconnect. And mm. um, and that's what feminism brings. It, it brings in a fundamental disconnect. There's a comment in the live chat, which I will read to you after the break. But for now, Andrew Wilson, this is uh, TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I've been in and around politics for over 50 years, so it takes a lot to surprise me, much less shock me. But I was shocked, shocked, not that so many Argentines voted for Javier Malay, but that the Peronist powers that be allowed him to win the election. And the thing that made me the happiest for my Argentine friends is the video that Malay put out where he went down the row of a magnetic board that had all the Argentine government ministries listed and all the irrelevant ones. He pulled them off the magnetic board over his shoulder. They're gone, no more. That's exactly what we need to have happen here in the United States. We need Donald Trump back in January of 2025 to streamline our government. We need to move the Department of the Interior actually out into the interior. We need to move the Department of Agriculture to where we commit agriculture. And most importantly, we need to defund and disband FBI and distribute its law enforcement functions to other agencies that have their own law enforcement capability already stood up. We can't have Donald Trump back fast enough. I'm glad that Malay is going to make Argentina great again. We need Donald Trump here to make America great again. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, protecting, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you, the Nonprofit Alliance. TNT, you're with Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Andrew, that's a great comment in the live chat. Americans seem to have become fat, lazy, and self-absorbed. And I, as a non-American, right, I'm an outsider looking in, I seem to see a trend, what appears to be your your uh, let's say, legacy, traditional, conservative, right-wing Americans, they tend to look better. They're healthier, fitter, stronger. Uh, whereas the left sort of liberal side of America always seems to have pink hair with piercings all over the place and are very unhealthy. They smoke. Well, you smoke too, but okay. They also smoke. They have all sorts of problems like diabetes, etc. Is this <laughs> is this something that's an, ac that's an accurate observation? Yes. So we call this the physiognomy check, right? Can we get a physiognomy check over here? So here's how this works. <laughs> you can almost tell by the, the type of person you're talking to, especially you, this is exposed time and time again in the online arena, right? The online, whether it's debates or politics or whatever it is, 
over and over and over again, we call it the look. There's a look. So I can almost tell just by looking at a person whether or not they're going to be a progressive, a dirty progressive, or if they're going to be kind of a more Chad laid back <laughs> conservative, just based on how the person looks and how they sound. So there's like this kind of Adderall rattled brain that you run into online all the time. This progressive Adderall uh, speed talking. You sound like a, a chipmunk um, type of brain and how it, and here's how they sound. So you'll talk to them. You'll say, hey, you know, good morning. How are you? And they'll be like, well, you know, due to the complexities of the, the, the and you go, man, calm down, you know, talk like a normal human being. But <laughs> they're also laced out on, um, you know, Adderall and all this different stuff that yes their their actual physiognomy uh itself seems to play a part so i i don't see for instance that many really strong looking kind of alpha chad dudes who are progressives there's just not that many they all kind of look like sickly vegan weasels and um and so you can almost spot them before before you even talk to them it's it's an interesting phenomenon i don't exactly know why that is um, except that the maybe the progressive path and the anti-God path is a much easier way um, for them to kind of cope with life. Like, God, why did you make me like this? Why did you make me ugly and kind of stupid and, uh, you know, force me to go on Adderall to cope with life? I mean, that's all I could think of because you're right. There's a physiognomy distinction. Yeah, and, and there seems to be a correlation, although, I mean, not always to be fair, but there seems to be a correlation between I won't only say Christian people, but I'll say Orthodox religious people, because I'm talking about a value system that, that they base their decisions on. So even if I disagree with, with, let's say, a Muslim's value system, he still has one nonetheless, whereas a lot of the sort of atheist or secular humanists who fall into the category that you just spoke about, um, those sickly types, um, they, they, they have they also are lost. I always see these people as lost. They have no direction because they've got no moral compass. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but I see it a little bit differently than you do uh, from having talked to, I don't know how many thousands of progressives mm. now, including their supposedly most educated ones. They do seem to have one moral foundation, which is protect degeneracy at all costs. So whatever the, um, the kind of thing is that you're arguing with, when you get down to the moral roots and foundations, it's almost always to protect a form of degeneracy. So progressives almost never want an expansion of rights of any kind unless it's to protect some sort of degenerate behavior. So what do they try to expand the rights on? We want to expand the rights of LGBTQ, uh, you know, prostitution, uh, abortion, things like this. That's what they always want to expand the rights of. What do we want to limit the rights of gun ownership, the First Amendment, you know, all the all the things that you would think were actually important. They want to limit those rights, but they always want to expand the degenerate rights. And that always seems to be the kind of the march that they're on, because I think at their core, a lot of these people are degenerates. I wonder why that is, though. I mean, what is so appealing, do you think, about being well, degenerate? Well, um, I think that it's kind of a perpetual rebellion to God. I think that it is them living in rebellion to God. So, um, you know, a lot of these people come from single mom households. They don't have good, staunch, strong male influences in their life. Masculinity is essentially a thing which they don't know anything about. They usually kind of have this feminine energy 
about even the way that they debate, which is very it's off putting for people. And so I think it's kind of the perfect storm and combination of being raised in a degenerate society and then moving over to what they think the majority and the kind of upper class thinks, which is that God's fake and Christians are dumb and, uh, you know, the religious are, are delusional. And so they they kind of move towards that mass of intellectualism because, you know, physically they're not cutting muster, right? They're not uh, mm. they're not people who physically look good enough to get a woman. They're not people who are have have kind of the masculine energy that women are attracted to. So they move over to kind of the intellectual elite class instead. Uh, this is an interesting comment uh, in the live chat from Sandy. She says, it's the parents' fault. That's an interesting, that, that really is interesting because it, it shows that there's a generational problem here, isn't there, Andrew? Well, and it's it's been there for a long time. The single mom problem, uh, that has now become more of a global Western phenomenon rather than just isolated to the United States. But because of the heightened divorce rate, women initiating most of those divorces and then getting custody of the kids, what has happened is an entire generation raised by almost pure feminine energy absent the masculine energy. And you see this in school, too, where, uh, you know, school is not tailored for young boys at all. It's tailored for young girls. It's sit still, be quiet. Uh, all the all the kind of different rules that women thrive under and girls thrive under, but boys don't thrive under those conditions. They thrive under a kind of rough, rowdy play, that type of thing. And none of that's even allowed, really, inside of public schools. It's all, uh, you know, let's space out in our bubbles and it's all very feminine. And so I think that um, I think that she makes a great point that a lot of this does start at home. But I, I would say it probably starts with the fact that most of them are raised by just a woman and there's no masculine energy at all. What about um, masculine energy when it comes from the woman? Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? So then it's just masculine feminine energy, <laughs> which is still not very masculine, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's just um, when, when a woman pretends to be a man, she always does a poor impersonation of one because you are confined to the ontology of what you are. You are confined to the nature of what you are. And so, um, you know, kind of that boss, the boss B, right? I'm the boss. Mm. I'm awesome. I'm one of those butt kicking chicks uh, that actually doesn't ever work out very well when it's applied. They still have to appeal to men for almost everything in society from keeping their air conditioning going to, you know, their roof leaks fixed to everything else. And children see all of this. And also the single mom phenomenon has led to a huge amount of promiscuity, which so that doesn't surprise me that that kind of pushes down towards the children who see that as not being a big deal. After all, uh, they saw the kind of promiscuity and degeneracy their whole lives. So, mm -hmm. Um, in the comments, somebody somebody called Mr. Moose says, uh, my mom was a housewife. Feminism is anathema to me. Anathema to me. Uh, she wore the trousers. Uh, so, I mean, you, we can take a look at any exception to the rule, uh, but there's still exceptions to the rule. So you can say that your, you know, your mom, she was the boss and she wore the pants and your dad was kind of, um, you know, a, well, I don't know what you would call it, a beta or whatever whatever it is that you want to call it. Uh, but so what? That's not the typical experience of people who grow up in a traditional household that has a mom and a dad who are in any type of religious marriage. That's not the the common occurrence. That would be the outlier. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you. Uh, the, the, the point is that history has determined how this should be. And what we're seeing now is an artificial attempt to invert it. And that's only going to lead to disaster. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that it, inside of a situation like that, you usually end up with divorce anyway. And remember that divorce is sky high. It's rocketed sky high and it's going to continue to do so. It is trending down a little bit, but that's because just less people are getting married, right? So so divorce trends down because the pool is smaller. So um, it, it, this this doesn't surprise me. There, It has been kind of a, this uh, constant move towards men and women being interchangeable widgets. and um, but But women don't seem to be uh, very happy inside of relationships that aren't patriarchal in nature. They seem to either want to be single or get out of those marriages with men who they feel like they can run. Mm. What you're saying is that women actually want men to be men. Oh, yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, all of the kind of um, self-respondence that you get out of women when you actually discuss these types of things with them. And that's why you see the manosphere and the red pill and all that has exploded. And so have their mm -hmm. shows. It's because they're pointing this out that the more they kind of put women to the question, uh, the more they find out that women, okay, actually don't want most of the things they claim they want. They actually do want a strong patriarch in the home. They do. They do kind of move towards the alpha Chad jerk who kind of treats them like garbage and says, you're going to do what you're told or we're just not going to you know, end up in a relationship. Yes, of course, they, they move and gravitate uh, towards those things. There's a, bio, there's a biology to it, right? They want to uh, become impregnated by the person who they think is going to be the best protector and have the highest value. So it, it makes sense to me. Mm. I asked you earlier, but uh, you might have forgotten, but w what do you make of Andrew Tate? Do you think he is a very bad example of masculinity? Uh, he, he, Tate makes a lot of good points, but he really lost me when he talked about, um, the having sex with a transgender woman, if they looked good versus an ugly woman. And I thought, yeah, you know, I, I think that that's a message I just can't get behind. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's a message that's just a little too much for my value structure. Uh, so he kind of lost me with that. Um, do I think that many of the descriptive claims and many of the descriptive things that he points out are true? Yeah. Do I think that um, uh, those things, again, as a provocation in society is good? Sure. But I also think there's parts of the message which are really quite degenerate and people should stay away from. Well, yeah, I mean, like, for example, just quickly, the opulence aspect, uh, he pushes the thing for, you know, like he's got 30 cars or something and they're all super expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what do you make of that? Well, this is just always the same kind of appeal to materialism. You know, materialism will make you happy. It never makes anybody happy. Nobody's ever happy just because they have a lot of stuff, right? So the absent mm -hmm. the human uh, experience, almost everybody is miserable. And, uh, you know, the, the Tate thing, some of that is kind of to showboat and say, you know, when you're in society as a male, you don't play by the rules and you don't give a shit about anything. Um, you know, you can basically do whatever you want. And women will flock to you and this kind of thing. Obviously, that's not true. You know what I mean? Clearly, that's not mm -hmm. true. There's exceptions to every rule. And so some people can find some success with that. But for the most part, 
it's uh, that's a basic materialist message, and it's an old one. You've seen I've seen this time and time again. Every two to five years, a guy comes along like this, and then they flaunt their wealth, and you know they say I'm I'm an alpha Chad and do what I say, and you know you're but you can't really compensate too much for kind of basic things that uh, you can't help. Like for instance, if you're an ugly man, chances are pretty good that you're going to end up married to or hooked up with an ugly woman, right? You're not probably going to get some knockout woman. And it's the same thing. If you're an ugly woman, chances are you're probably not going to get Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? Now your chances as an ugly woman getting Brad Pitt are way higher than your chances as an ugly man, you know, getting uh, Jessica Alba, for instance. But I'm just saying, ultimately, uh, ugly people tend to end up with each other and beautiful people tend to end up with each other. That's the way that that kind of really works. And why wouldn't it work that way? If your option was mm. a really beautiful woman or an ugly woman and they both treated you about the same, which one would you take? Mm. You know, okay. <laughs> so anyway, Andrew, quickly, uh, time is uh, running against us. Uh, how can I follow you? Yeah, you can find me at, at Paleo Christcon on Twitter and you can also find me on my channel, The Crucible. And that's on YouTube. Wow, that's really, really short and sweet. <laughs> yeah, short and to the point. Uh, all my links are there on both those channels. So, you know, any other place or if you want to support my work, we're constantly uh, heading up head to head against the left, especially during debates. You can find tons of debate highlights on the channel. And I hope to see all of you there. Mm. And I just want to emphasize the uh, basis of this conversation today was that, that hilarious quote unquote debate that you had, which, which I encourage everybody to go and watch on YouTube. There wasn't much of it. <laughs> your your yeah, opponent just got up. <laughs> yeah, the definitive version for that debate you'll find on the Crucible's channel. Um, and that's all high def, so. All right, Andrew Wilson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Oh, you're welcome. Appreciate you having me. I will look forward to our next chat in two weeks' time. Until then, send me a mail, germwarfare at tntradio.live. Let me know what you thought. Tell me how much you love Andrew. Uh, I will forward it on to him. In the meantime, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas.